On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, continuing our study in Ecclesiastes. Uh, series title is Meaningless Life. Today is part six, titled Drop Your Phone in the Lake. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 3. And let me start by saying that life is filled with some unexpected moments of sudden, deep, profound joy. I'll give you an example. Um, I did not grow up in a boating family. We uh, were working class poor. My dad was a drywaller. My mom stayed home with us, five kids. Uh, we didn't have a boat, didn't do any boating. And then uh, I got five kids. And a few years ago, a very nice uh, family that lives on a lake and has a boat and a dock uh, said, hey, we're going to be gone for a few weeks during the summer. Would you guys want to use our place for your summer family vacation? Well, that sounded awesome. So that's exactly what we did. And we showed up at their house. And lo and behold, right alongside the house was a dock. And tied to the dock was a ski boat. And we quickly got some inner tubes. And I did not know much about boating. So I had to get a uh, boater's license. And just tangentially, uh, I passed it. Uh, I'm sure that impresses you. And uh, it was very helpful to learn things such as uh, you should not smoke while gassing up your boat. Who knew? Just passing that along as a, a bit of a public service announcement. You're welcome. Nonetheless, passed my uh, boating uh, exam online, took my family out to the house, uh, filled up the uh, the inner tubes, little note for uh, you dads, use the leaf blower, it goes a lot faster, and then uh, took my kids out on the lake, and my kids, I found out, they love getting pulled on an inner tube at twice the speed of sanity behind a boat on a lake. Uh, pretty soon, we got two uh, ropes going, we've got two uh, tubes going, and they're bouncing into one another, and the kids are uh, flying all over the lake. Amazingly wonderful, enjoyable, awesome, therapeutic family time. We uh, loved every minute of it, and uh, the days were just awesome together out on the lake. And so for the kids, it was just big fun, uh, crank up the music, and uh, and get drug around and, and enjoy. For me, I found it relaxing. My mind was distracted. I love driving the boat. Um, if my phone rang, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't check it. And I just got to enjoy hours of, of fun on the lake with the family. But the, the worst part of every day was, was, was going home. Um, pulling back into the dock was fine. Tying up the boat was fine. The, the, the disappointing, discouraging, difficult part of the day was as soon as I'd get off the boat, I'd pull my phone and uh, check it for the first time that day. And usually, despite you know a lot of help and good people and uh, people who are man in the office and and trying to help out, my phone would blow up, text, email voicemail, phone call, um, media, social media. And uh, how many of you can relate to this? It's usually just bad news. It's not good news. It's oppression, injury, injustice, pain, suffering, misery. And then to make matters worse, get news alerts. Oh, here's what's going on in the world. Bad, very bad very, very bad, very, very, very bad, very, 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 very bad. I mean, it, it's it's not good news. You, you never get a news alert. Um, you know, husband and wife forgave each other, prayed, and lived happily ever after. You never get that. It's only always 
bad news. And so for me, I'd check my boat, my phone getting off the boat, but between the short walk from the dock up to the house, my joy was fading like an inner tube with a big leak. I just found it to be so discouraging to actually know what was happening in the lives of people that we knew and loved and the world in which we live. And then one day something amazing happened. Uh, dock the boat, the kids jump out, they're running around the yard with the dog and having fun and I'm pulling my phone out of my pocket and I dropped it accidentally. It bounced off the dock and went tumbling headlong into the water and suddenly sank and disappeared into what the Old Testament calls Sheol. It's, it's the underworld. It's gone. And at that moment, I think my first instinct response was, oh no, I dropped my phone. And my second instinct and response was, oh, praise the Lord, I've dropped my phone. I was so happy that the phone was gone because if I would have thrown it in the lake, which in hindsight might have not been a bad idea, that would have been irresponsible. But since I dropped it, it was accidental. And all of a sudden, joy just enveloped me like a warm towel that had been sitting in the sun that surrounds your cold body after a day in the water at the lake. It felt so good. I was so relieved to know that at least for an indefinite period of time, no bad news could come my way. Hey, in the providence of a sovereign God who rules over all events and time and history. I leaned into my Calvinism for a moment. Perhaps this was a good gift from the hand of our good God, to quote the Puritans. So I thought, well, there you go. My phone's in the lake. Uh, thank you, Lord, for ruling the details on high. And so for a while, I did not have a phone. I thought for at first, I should go into town and get a phone. We're kind of remote. And I thought, mm, no, I, I'm going to I'm gonna just let my phone sit at the bottom of the lake while I enjoy my family. Well, eventually vacation ended. We loaded up the dog, we loaded up the car, we headed home. And as I was driving home, I started thinking to myself, well, I guess it's probably time for this uh, adult to be responsible and to go buy another phone. So I headed into the store, quite depressed, and got a new phone, got it all activated, and it, it just felt like I stuck a needle in my arm, hooked myself up to an IV bag filled with poison. It was all bad news. It was all horrific news. From the, from the news alerts to the news apps, to the personal contact from people, to the reports of those that are in extended relationships and friends and family and ministry. All of a sudden, it was just reality all at once flooding in. And you realize, if you pay any attention, that the world is an evil place. It's a flawed place. It's a dark place. It's a dangerous place. It's a scary place. It's a painful place. It's a broken place. It's a wounded place. It's a it's a devastating place. And that's the sad sentiment of Solomon. See, as, as king, he had access to more facts, more news, more reports, more information than anyone in his day. Kind of like we live today. He had nobles and officials, including the Queen of Sheba, visit him from all over the world, giving him reports of, of places that he had never been to and, and news that he could have not otherwise known. He sat in a privileged place where he could gaze throughout the world and the affairs of men and women, and he comes to this conclusion. Perhaps you've reached this place as well. Ecclesiastes 3.16, he says, I also noticed that under the sun, and again, under the sun is a, a phrase that appears, if memory serves me correct, some 
29-ish times in the book. And what he's talking about is what the philosophers will call empiricism. It's only using your five senses. It's what godly grandmas will call worldly thinking. Um, this is how the world sees it. This is how the world calls it. This is how the world interprets the data that they receive. This is life of speculation, not revelation. This is life if God didn't break in and say anything and all we were left was to survey the world and amass our experiences and rush to the best conclusion we could without a word from God. He says, I also notice that under sun there is evil. Evil. Do, do you believe that? Boy, there's a word we don't use much anymore. Evil. It's hard to deny evil if you're paying any attention. I mean, we've become so numb to evil, particularly through technology. Oh, a typhoon hit there. Oh, someone was assaulted there. Oh, someone was shot in the head here. Oh, they beheaded these guys. Oh, this plane crashed. Oh, this you know, husband did this to his wife and oh, these children were neglected and it's just constant. We should be crying every second of every day. Every time we check our phone, we should fall to the ground and weep for an hour. And we don't. Because We've become numb, desensitized, we're overwhelmed. There's so much evil that we don't even know what to do with it all. And occasionally, now there are going to be some of you maybe who hear this and you want to argue a little bit. You're kind of a naive optimist. You say silly things like, oh, they're good people and they have a good heart. Don't you ever notice this after like someone shoots up a restaurant or shoots up a movie theater or, or shoots up a school, they interview people who knew the person that pulled the trigger and it's like, well, oh, he was a good person, he had a good heart. No, apparently not. Apparently not. Because if the heart is the wellspring of life, they were evil. And what they did was evil. And the world is filled with evil. And, and unless you're some naive, you know, philosophy student who doesn't have internet ignores the world and lives all alone on some mountaintop to where you don't need locks on your doors and cops on your speed dial. You have to agree, there's evil in this world. Not just mistakes, not just quirks, not just personality differentiations, not just cultural uh, alterations. There's evil. He says, I also noticed that under the sun there is evil. Where? He says, in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. So here's what he's saying. Evil happens in the world because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We have a conscience. We just know some things are right, some things are wrong. And so what happens then is, we go to the courts seeking justice to deal with the evil. And then when we get there, we realize that the world is evil and the courts are corrupt. To be sure, there are good cops. I know some good lawyers. I've met some good laws. I've seen some good judges. I've been acquainted with some, but there are also bad cops, bad lawyers, bad laws and bad judges. And the bad guys seem to often find a way around the system to get what they want so that corruption is covered up by more corruption. This is the tall glass of reality, 100 proof, undiluted, served up by Solomon to anyone who is bellied up to the bar of life under the sun. Now, let me say this too. Some of you are justice people. Solomon's a justice person. The Bible is a justice book. So we're not going to say that's a bad thing. But for those of you or those of us who are justice people, we need to be careful. Because when we read this, there can be this self-righteous indignation 
particularly the more religious we might be, that makes us feel like, yes, the world is evil and I am good. The world is wrong. I am right. I see things as they are. I know how things should be. And my anger, my frustration, my fury is that things aren't the way that they should be, the way that I see them to be. Let's be careful. I'm going to read you a verse from Proverbs 18, 17 in the ESV translation. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. What he's saying is this. Uh, be really careful you don't rush to an answer if you don't know all the facts. Until you've heard both sides of the story, until you've examined all of the evidence. This happens all the time, right? This is why sometimes the most guilty person is the first to tell their side of the story. This is sometimes why you find this even with little kids. Just because a little kid runs in and says, this is what happened. Well, you got better go check. Because sometimes they're actually the guilty party and they're trying to tell their side first, hoping to indict the other and thereby corrupt the court of mom. See, sometimes, if not oftentimes, particularly those of us who are justice type people, we're rushing to conclusions about things that we know very little facts about. Even a good judge reaches a bad verdict with the wrong information. Do you really know what's going on in a particular circumstance or situation? I've told a story a lot of times, but it was a kind of a wake-up call for me as a young pastor, maybe around-ish, uh, 20 years ago. Um, so I had a young woman, newly married, come up to me and say with great emotion that her husband had grabbed her by the wrist physically restraining her. You feel that? It was like that. And she wanted me to deal with her husband because after all, right, the Bible says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. Well, I'm a young pastor. I guess now I, in my heart, I got a little throne and a little gavel and I get to wear a little robe and render a little verdict. And so I'm going to go out and take care of this and get me some justice. So I meet with a husband and he could see that I wasn't going to ask a lot of questions, that I had already reached some conclusions. And to his credit, kindly, respectfully, reasonably, uh, he asked me, uh, mm, so what exactly, exactly did my wife say to you? And I told him, she said, you grabbed her by the wrist and physically restrained her and you're bigger and stronger than she is. And, and she felt that was just very ungodly and you have no right to do that. Well, it was around this moment that he pointed to his head, his forehead. And he said, uh, you see this big gash? And I did. I mean, he looked like a cage fighter who got, you know, stuck on the bottom and ate a few elbows and opened up in the head. So yeah, he had a big gash. Looked like he'd been grounded and pounded a bit. Is that my iced tea? And he explained, well, we were having dinner together and his wife has apparently got some anger issues and she got ticked at him about something, grabbed his plate, dumped his dinner on his lap and down his front, picked up the plate, his plate, slammed it into the front of his head, cutting him open with a big gash, so he's bleeding. And then she grabbed a steak knife so she could stab him in the chest. Okay, now, you don't need a law degree to reach this conclusion. That's a variable, right? That's a variable. So what he did was when she went to stab him with the steak knife in the chest, he grabbed her wrist to prevent her from filling him with cutlery. To which I would say, that is a variable that needs to be considered. And uh, I went back to his wife and I said, you know, I had rushed to a conclusion and was seeking justice when 
your husband, upon cross-examination, provided for me some more variables. Did this, in fact, occur? And she sort of looked at the ground and said, well, yeah, I mean, that, that happened too. Here's my point. Justice, real, true, accurate, informed, reasonable justice, it's difficult to achieve, it's difficult to ascertain, it's difficult to confirm. It doesn't mean that we should not pursue it. It just means there needs to be some humility and some caution that we don't just take a few facts and rush to a judgment. That, that's what Solomon is getting at. And he's saying, even in the courts, and sometimes the courts are totally corrupt, and that's what he's getting at. Sometimes the courts are corrupt, but even a good court can come to a corrupt decision. I mean, Let's just be honest. You don't think that everybody who's been convicted is guilty, and you don't think that everybody walking on the street is guilt-free. Well, here's the problem. We still want justice. We want justice. But if the world is evil and the courts are crooked, is there any hope? Is this just a world that is in complete and utter anarchy and will be until we've all killed each other? Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said to myself, Solomon declares, in due season, eventually, in time, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds, everyone, good and bad, for all their deeds. Now, there's justice. See, in this world, even the best system of justice can't judge everyone. It doesn't know all the good and bad, and we don't have access to everyone's true deeds. We just, there's a limit, we're finite. We don't have full knowledge, we're not all-knowing. We're not omniscient like God. And so what he's saying is this, that that longing, that desire, that appetite that persists within us for justice, it, it is only ultimately satisfied by God in the end at the judgment. So our only hope for real, true justice, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't seek justice and social order and reasonable court systems along the way. But the only hope for true, complete, right justice leads us invariably to long for that day, that last great glorious good day when God holds court. See, God sees all, God knows all, God judges all, and he does so rightly, he does so truly, he does so justly. And if you don't believe this, friend, if, if all you believe is that, that there is no judgment at the end, and a lot of Ecclesiastes is driving toward the judgment seat of Christ, if all we're left with, though, is social Darwinism that might makes right, that the fittest survive, and the rest of us are just the human shield here to stop the bullets from getting to the bourgeois, then, then what is the point? See, the Bible calls us to live in light of a final judgment. You and I are going to die. And we're not going to give an account to a mirror. We're going to give an account to the God who will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. And after winding and wandering and speculating all over the first three chapters... This statement from Solomon feels like a raft that has been adrift at sea has finally dropped an anchor. There's solid ground here. 
And, and here, a major theme of Ecclesiastes emerges, the future judgment. He's going to pick it up later in the book a few times, and it really culminates in chapter 12. And it's a huge theme in the book. A friend of mine, she's a, a really a brilliant woman who has studied this book for decades, has really, really pointed this out to me. This concept of the future judgment, it drives Ecclesiastes forward. How do we make sense of what's going on in the world? Well, it won't make any sense until it's all laid at the feet of Jesus and he sorts it all out at the end. And so this desire in the human conscience for justice, it ultimately pushes us forward from Ecclesiastes to the cross of Jesus, where he died in our place for our sins, where the judge was also our substitute, where justice came and though guilty, we are forgiven because his death brought us life. This, this desire for justice, it points us forward to the end of Revelation and the white throne judgment where everyone who does not know Jesus is once and for all judged and sentenced to their eternal fate in hell. It doesn't make the, the tears and the years along the way any, any less painful, but it does make them more meaningful as we lean into the future where we know that ultimately it all comes to an end when it comes to the feet of the Lord Jesus in judgment. And this is so helpful and so practical and so meaningful, and it establishes for us a critical component of our worldview. And this is how we view all of reality in our life under the sun. See, universalism isn't true. Universalism teaches that in the end, everyone will wind up in heaven forever and no one will spend eternity in hell. That's not a judgment. That's not justice. Annihilationism teaches that no one will spend forever in hell, and in the end, they'll just simply cease to exist at some point following death. Not true. See, universalism is wrong. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, and annihilationism is wrong. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you know how everlasting, do you know how long everlasting is? It's forever and ever and ever, which is a really long time. And Daniel is saying, some are going to hell, some are going to heaven. And they're both going to be there for the same amount of time, forever. That those who believe in Jesus will be in heaven just as long as those who don't believe in Jesus will be in hell forever. When Jesus talks about a narrow path that few travel and narrow gates through which few pass, he's not saying there is no path, there are no gates, and everyone's fine. And then there's reincarnation and purgatory that both teach that there is further opportunity for salvation following death. But Hebrews 9.27 refutes both possibilities saying, quote, it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. And then lastly, some will teach soul sleep, that you just sort of go into this unconscious state. But that's not true. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. In Philippians 1, 21 through 23, Paul is saying, I'm here on the earth. I look forward to the day when I die and I get to go be with Jesus. He's not talking about a soul sleep. He's talking about a soul that gets to be with a savior. And lastly, some people will say, well, after you die, we simply go to a better place and our body goes in the ground and our soul just goes up into the clouds and we sit there wearing a diaper and plinking on a harp, and, and that's not true. That's a cartoon. The Bible teaches that our spiritual soul inhabits a physical body, that the two are divided at death, and upon the resurrection of the dead, that the soul goes back into the body, and that we stand as a whole person before the judgment seat of Christ. We stand before the white throne judgment of Christ, and he who sees all, he who knows all, judges all forever.
That's what the Bible teaches. And so here, as Solomon is struggling through a lot of these issues, and you'll, you'll hear the echoes and the intimations of, of this struggle, he's looking at life before Jesus came. He looks at life before Jesus died. He looks at life before Jesus rose. And all he sees is evil in the world and corruption in the courtroom. And he's wondering, God, how will you judge all of this sin? What will you do with all of this evil? How will you straighten out all that is made crooked? How will you right all that is so wrong? And Jesus, the one who is wiser and greater than Solomon, he comes. And he says this in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, when it comes to important matters like the meaning of life and, and the destiny following death. What we don't need is speculation or mere philosophy or religion or hope or platitudes or pithy statements. What we need is someone to come along and say, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. That's what Jesus does. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, Jesus says, we hear the voice of the Son of God, that's him, and those who hear will live. There's the resurrection of the dead. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. There it is. Because he is the Son of Man. God became a man, and this God-man is in the perfect position uh, to be the God who judges men. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, Jesus says, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. There's resurrection. See, some people think, I got away with it, I got away with it, and then they die. And we think, oh, they got away with it, they got away with it. No, they don't. They die and stand before Jesus after he brings their body back from the dead and fills it with their soul so that the whole person gives an account to the God who sees, knows, and judges all. Jesus goes on to say, those who have done good go to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, heaven and hell. Sometimes justice comes in this life. And people die oftentimes without ever seeing justice. And this is a frustrating reality for Solomon. Perhaps it's a frustrating reality for you. Yet Jesus comes. Jesus teaches about him judging the dead after he rises them from the grave. Jesus is the one to whom we will give an account. He is the God who judges all justly and rightly. And I'll tell you, friends, we love Jesus for his mercy, and we should, and his grace, and his love, and his forgiveness. I'm just so glad that Jesus is the one who's going to deal with it all, aren't you? There are days, let's just be honest, you and I both, we get pretty frustrated. We think, all right, I'd like to sit on the throne and render some verdicts and get some things checked off the docket here. There's a few people that need to be dealt with and a few things that need to be settled. I'll tell you what, we're not fit to sit in that seat. We should never think that we're ready to sentence eternally people. Yes, verdicts can be rendered in this life, but when it comes to eternal life, I'm so glad it's in the hands of Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesus is the one who sorts it all out for everyone in the end. There's no one else. There's no one else that could possibly even begin to bring justice like Jesus. Solomon then transitions and he, he thinks not only about the pain of life, but the frailty of life and the fleeting nature of life. He says this, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. I also thought about the human condition. What he's doing here, he's pausing, he's pondering. He's pontificating. That's what he's doing. And sometimes we need to do the same thing, right? Turn the TV off. Turn the cell phone off. Turn the laptop off. Silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, journaling, thinking, reflecting, listening, praying, considering. Blaise Pascal, a great philosopher, he talked a lot about diversions, that sometimes we fill our lives with diversions so that we aren't forced to think about the things that really matter. He cast aside his diversions. He said, I also thought about the human condition. Spent some time thinking about this. 
how God proves to people that they are like animals, for people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. So people, he says, have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. For both go to the same place. They came from dust, they return to dust. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So he concludes, so I saw there is nothing better for people than to be happy in the work, that is our lot in life, and no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. He says, here's the problem. Not only is there evil in the world and is there uh, corruption in the court, we're all gonna die and we don't even know what happens after that. And he says, you can't prove it to me. He said, you know what? I, I rode my horse the other day. The horse and I both, we're both gonna end up in a hole. And who's to say that I'm gonna have any better future after death than the animal? That's what he says. We're in no better position or condition. And he says, you know what? It would be nice. This is where he's pontificating, he's speculating. Wouldn't it be nice if someone would die and then come back and then tell us what awaits us on the other side, but nobody's ever done that. So who can bring us back to show us what happens after we die? That's his question. Do you see this? Solomon is starving for Jesus. He's frustrated. He's come to the conclusion that life isn't fair and people die and there's no justice. And it seems like the bad guys win. You ever felt that way? There's a question in the Old Testament. Why did the wicked prosper? That's the question. Why are the bad guys always winning? Well, if you've spent any time with kids and I love kids, love, 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 love kids. In fact, uh, now that we're living in Phoenix um, <clears throat> for sometimes coffee, a couple hours together just to visit and talk and catch up, Grace and I'll sit outside by a splash pad. We've got these splash pads in various places where the water shoots up and all these little kids are there playing and running around and having fun. And it's just the happiest place on earth. We just love to sit there. Our kids are older now and they're in school and it's just really fun to see the little ones running around having fun. But if you hang out with kids, you'll hear something that I heard recently at the splash pad. <clears throat> Here's the quote. That's not fair. That's not fair. Okay. And the situation was that uh, as the water was shooting up out of the splash pad, uh, the kids had toys and one of the kids ran over, took the toy right over the hand of the other kid. I mean, you don't even have to teach kids to steal. It's like they got a sin nature or something. It's crazy. He runs over and basically commits larceny, grabs this toy out of this kid's hand and then runs over. And the other kid is sitting there crying and he's just saying over and over and over, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. Expecting someone to do something, which of course they don't. Okay. Kids made in God's image with a conscience, just innately, intuitively know when something's not fair. So when a kid takes your toy, hits you over the head with it, when a kid wipes their nose on your dessert, when a kid pushes you down for no apparent reason other than just to see you tumble, a kid, because they're an image bearer of God, they seek to appeal to some cosmic law established for all eternity that has been clearly violated. It's almost like they're shouting up to the heavens. That's not fair. That's not fair. That's not fair. You know what's interesting? The older we get, the less we say that. The older we get, we stop saying, that's not fair. And we start saying this, life's not fair. When you say that's not fair, you're, you're saying something needs to change. When you say life's not fair, you, you've sort of resolved to the fact that nothing's gonna change. You stop appealing to some higher cosmic law, just settle into the reality as a depressed adult that, well, life's a wood chipper and I'm just another log. I mean, do you, 
Do you say that anymore? That's not fair. Probably not. If you're old enough to podcast, you're probably old enough to have come to the conclusion life's not fair. Life's not fair. That's where Solomon is driving. There's evil in the world, corruption in the courts, and then we die. That's not fair. And so we come together as societies, nations, communities. We make laws, we elect officials, we put a badge on the police officers, we have jails for the bad guys, we have wars, we have capital punishment, we have threat of retribution from the state. At the very least, if you do something wrong, we take your money, make you pay for it. We know it's not gonna make everything all better, it's not gonna bring total justice, but it's just our way of trying to keep all hell from breaking loose. I mean. You know as well as I do, power goes out in a city for one hour and it's Armageddon. You take away the threat of judgment. You take away the possibility of punishment. You eliminate and eradicate the opportunity for justice and you will find yourself sprinting fast into the deep, dark cave of human depravity where anything is possible. And Solomon is saying that even though the systems and institutions that we implement and install to try and restrain evil are our best efforts, they ultimately fail because a system is only as good as the person who's in charge of implementing and creating policies and procedures. See, sinners don't bring about ultimate justice upon sinners. We can't. We're imperfect. We're flawed. We have mixed motives. We have selfish intentions. We have biases. We have self-interest. That's why none of us, none of us, none of us believes that all the bad guys are in jail and none of the good guys are in jail and that all of the good guys are on the street and that none of the bad guys have gotten away with it. And so here's the truth, right? We have a love-hate relationship with justice. When someone sins against you or me or us, we want justice. You stole my car? Hey, I want my car back. You stole my identity and spent all my money. Hey, I want that back. You've harmed me, you've injured me, you've wronged me. I need some sort of compensation. You've broken or breached a contract. Well, you need, you need to pay for that. I want justice. I want recompense. Somebody's got to right this wrong. I am the offended party. Where is my justice? At the same time, we're all hypocrites, at least to some degree. It's justice for them and mercy for me. If you're the one who stole the car, ran the intersection, T-boned the vehicle, padded the bill for the company so you could increase your bottom line and get caught, well, then you don't want justice, you want mercy. Oh, nobody's perfect, you don't know my heart, I didn't mean to, it was an accident, it'll never happen again. We, that's what happens. And so there's this painful double edge with justice. We love justice for that guy, but we hate it for ourselves. And so what Solomon says is because of this, what invariably happens is that justice keeps getting orphaned by the system. What he's saying is looking at it from under the sun or from the world's perspective without revelation from God, it seems like we're all no better off than the animals, right? Do you know what happens in the animal kingdom? It's ugly, friends. Animals stalk and devour one another and then they die. And Solomon says, Unless God gives us more information, that sounds like us. We stalk and devour one another and then we all die and it's over. This is why I think any honest person would have an easier time believing in devolution than evolution. That maybe the evolutionary chart they put up in school was in the wrong order and that we're on our way to becoming apes with a thumb, Wi-Fi, and a driver's license. But we're just filthy 
amoral, immoral, headed, destined for death, stalking, consuming, devouring, and using along the way. Man, Solomon would not be writing greeting cards today, amen? I mean, you feel the tone? I'm sitting here all by myself. It's hot. I'm, I'm sitting here without the air conditioning. I'm trying not to create too much background distraction and noise. But I think I've even just managed to make myself stressed and depressed. I mean, you think about it. Good golly, who's this honest? I mean, look on the bright side. Not going to do that. Every cloud has a silver lining right before the lightning bolt comes out and strikes you in the head. And for some of you, you, you just kind of avoid reality because it's just so painful. And what Solomon keeps doing is just taking reality and just pressing it right in front of our eyeballs and forcing us to just look at it. Man, it's dark. It's dreary. It's devastating. It's discouraging. It's distressing. And he doesn't even know about Jesus yet. Not like we do. Solomon says, since no one comes back from the dead to prove there's anything like a final judgment or eternal state, where's our hope? Man, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, you came to answer all of Solomon's questions, to fulfill all of human longings, to, to clarify for us, okay, there is a God and he does care and he is just and he's willing to forgive. And for those who don't repent, we're not gonna have to deal with them forever. For those of us who do repent, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And that we're not just animals, we're image bearers of God. And after we die, we rise. And sin and death and suffering and tears and wars and pain and carnage and grief is no more. And just like the Lord Jesus came back, we're going to come back. And we're going to enjoy eternity with him. And that ultimately there is justice at the cross of Jesus or the judgment seat of Jesus. But either way, it's all Jesus. And he'll get it right the first time. Now the soul can take the deep breath. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, here's our final section. He says, I observed all the oppression that has taken place under the sun. How much oppression have you seen? Personally, in your own life, in your family, with your friends? Do you follow the news? Do you pay attention to what's going on in the world? You ever taken a missions trip? You ever visited the persecuted church? says, I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living, but most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all of the evil that is done under the sun. In closing, Solomon says that death is for the believer a relief. Finally, a day comes when we don't have to read the news, hear the horror, or comfort the victims anymore. And I'm talking real victims. For those of you who are pastors, your counselors, your teachers, your caregivers, your doctors, you've got a front row seat. You know what people do to people. And he says, one day we die. The only thing worse than living in this world is living in this world forever. That would be hell. 
And so one day life on the earth comes to an end, and one day the earth itself comes to an end. And we won't scar anyone, and they won't scar us. And everything will be different in the kingdom of God. And so if the earth is a burning building, he says there are two things we can do as we run out the exit. One, we can comfort the oppressed. Sometimes people don't need an answer because there isn't an answer. Sometimes people don't need a solution because there isn't a solution. Sometimes people just need a friend. Job's whole world crumbled down and a couple of his buddies who seemed like they were from Bible college wanted to run everything through their theological grid and argue and they didn't comfort him at all. Sometimes we just need the ministry of presence, someone to sit there for a season of grieving and healing because the only thing worse than suffering is doing so alone. I would ask you, who in your life right now is suffering, hurting, maybe even oppressed? It's a big word. The woman who's in the middle of a brutal divorce from a harsh, deadly husband. There's nothing you can do. The courts have got to sort it all out. The person who has some undiagnosed medical ailment, they're sick, they're bleeding, they're suffering, they're struggling, they're dying. The doctors can't figure it out. Nobody can fix it. They just need you to sit there with them and say things like, I don't know. I just know this sucks and I'm sorry and I'm here with you. I talked to a guy recently, sent an email. Him and his wife had a miscarriage. Their unborn baby died. They have healthy kids as well. And now his wife's pregnant again, but they have anxiety. What? What could happen this time? I just told him, man, I'm sorry. My wife and I lost a baby. It was devastating for us both. There are still days that I choke up because I feel like somebody's missing in my family. And sometimes people in those circumstances, they have a question like, where did the baby go? You could say, well, God's a father. He decides. Jesus says that the kingdom was made for such as these. David grieved until his baby died, and then he stopped his mourning and said, I'll see him again one day. We can give you some theological tips and pointers and hints and breadcrumbs left along the way. He and people like him ask questions like, if God is loving and sovereign, how could he allow something like this to happen? Sometimes it's not very helpful to run down that rabbit trail. Who has known the mind of the Lord? When Paul asks that question, he's not waiting for some reform guy in the back of the class to raise his hand and answer the question. It's rhetorical. I don't know. Why was that woman assaulted by that man? Evil is in the world. Evil is in the man. It's wrong. It breaks the heart of God. Our God is a God who weeps, starting in, I think it's the sixth chapter of the Bible. You don't have to get very far until God is grieved in his heart. Jesus shows up. Isaiah says he's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. God's not looking at the world and saying, just like I like it. Sometimes people are in sin and they need to repent. Sometimes people are broken and they need to be healed. Sometimes they're oppressed and they need to be comforted. That's what Solomon says. Sometimes we don't have solutions and we don't have answers, but we have presence. And there's the ministry of presence. 
That's why we love the Lord Jesus so much. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And he says the Holy Spirit to make that promise come true. Boy, in this world, you need the presence of God, particularly when you're oppressed. And you need to bring the presence of God as God's people to those who are oppressed. Number two, he said we can grab with both hands the opportunities for joy that God affords us along the way. That's what he says. That's what he says. He just said it previously. Ecclesiastes 3. There's nothing better, verse 22, than for people to be happy in their work. That is our lot in life. What he's saying is, yeah, you know what? Life is tough. This is where I get really frustrated with any Bible teachers or religious leaders who it's all about the bright side. What about the dark side? It's all about the good days. What about the bad days? It's all about Resurrection Sunday. Well, what about Black Death Saturday? You know, right now, friends, we know that Sunday's coming and that Jesus is going to call everybody out of their grave. But today's Saturday, man. We're still in it. We're still here. We haven't been totally brought forth yet. It's okay to say life is hard. It's okay to say some things are frustrating. It's okay to say, I don't know up or down or right for wrong or head for tails. I can't get the facts. I don't know who to trust. I'm just so frustrated. I'd like to see things change and justice come and, and things to get straightened out. And I don't even know where to start. And when I go to an organization or to a court or to a leader or to a person in authority, I don't even know if they're right or wrong or good or evil or going to help or harm. I don't know where to start. And so there's this whole cultural mood of just frustration, of anger, of something's got to change. And everybody's all worked up in a frenzy. Man, nothing's changed. This, this book is about 3,000 years old. And we're still driving around the same cul-de-sac, frustrated by the same things. And so he says, in this, the Bible, and arguably one of the most honest books in the whole Bible, which is the most honest book, we're urged, we're invited to Find the joy that God provides along the way and to grab it with both hands because it's such a gift. See, after the final judgment, when all is said and done and every tear has been wiped from every eye and every ember of evil has been extinguished and the kingdom of God and all of its glory is unveiled, there'll be nothing but peace and love and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, friends, this is as close as God's people get to hell. And for those who are not God's people, this is as close as they get to heaven. And for the people of God, this kingdom reality that our God is good and he brings moments of joy and relief and gladness into this world to remind us of a kingdom that'll be our eternal home. This kingdom reality begins internally through the Holy Spirit the moment you meet Jesus. It continues externally as we experience kingdom moments in this life where the grace of God shows up and there's something to enjoy. There's someone to enjoy. And it continues eternally in the presence of Jesus, our judge and our Lord who died on a cross in our place for our sins to, to defeat our rebellion with his redemption. I guess I just close with this. Everybody who's frustrated just wants Jesus to come back. The good news is, he's coming. We don't know when, but we know for sure that the same Jesus who has been good with every promise he has ever made will be good for the most important promise of all, that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that he is coming again to bring a world that never ends, that he is coming again to bring life where there is death, to bring healing where there is brokenness, to bring comfort where there is woundedness, 
to bring forgiveness where there is sin, to bring reconciliation where there is strain, to bring joy where there is sadness. And along the way to that great, glorious, good, eternal home, the Lord Jesus shows up in moments and he brings us great comfort and great joy and great gladness. And Solomon is saying, until we all get home, comfort the oppressed. And when you see an opportunity to make a memory of joy, grab it with both hands. Because the only two things we will take with us into the kingdom, dear friends, are people and memories. And so comfort the people and build the memories. And that is the wisdom of Solomon. Thanks for tuning in.